do not believe in the power of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather. Do not believe in the power of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather. It's a paraphrase from a Tibetan Lama, Lama Gendon Rinpoche. Why do I begin with this? Because often we spend much of our time believing in the mind's productions, in how we're relating to the practice, how we're relating to our experience. I had a good sit. I had a bad sit. I'm good at this. Oh, I'm really no good at this. And there's an underlying belief. There's an underlying core stickiness that holds these energies that keep pulling our hearts and our minds away from a vivid freshness in the present moment. And so I start here because this is where we start. And if I'm not speaking to you and only about myself, fine. But this is a big part of practice, is dealing with these energies. Let's go back oh, 2,600 years or so to the night of the Buddha's enlightenment. So let's say this is a myth, a mythological story. And so it said, as the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, the tree of awakening, that Mara, the personification of this sticky clutching energy that makes us believe all the movements of our minds and hearts in relation to experience, that Mara came to the Buddha and he was sitting peacefully under the tree on his night of enlightenment and said, first he came to the Buddha and he said, he threw energies at him to see if he could shake the Buddha from his roost of deeply seated mindfulness. And so it said he, he had these armies So it's a myth. So these arose in his mind and his heart, I guess. Armies that were very dangerous looking, angry, supposed to make the Buddha buy into energies of anger or fear and budge. But the Buddha did not budge. His mind was not shaken. And so then it's said that Mara tempted the Buddha with his own daughters, brought his own daughters in to seduce the Buddha away from his seat of awareness. But he was unshaken. And it said that Mara, this underlying force of delusion personified, said, what right do you have to be here? Appealed to his basic self-worth in a way, challenged it. And the Buddha took his hand, just like this Buddha back here, and he touched the earth. And it said that the earth shook as a witness to the right that he had to be there. And I love this in a way because our practice is working with these forces inside ourselves. The forces that come to us as fear, as aversion, as seduction, as want or not want, as challenging our self-worth, good, bad, believing in these experiences. So it's said that the Buddha was not shaken, he was awakened. And touching the earth, his witness was what? What is the earth? It's touching the moment, cleanly, fully, clearly. So in a way, our practice is this. It is trying to learn how, and there's a specific way the Buddha recommended, which I'll be exploring in this and future talks on this retreat, of 
cultivating this inner sense of uh, steadiness, you can call it an inner dignity, that is not shaken by the inner winds that move within us, force of our minds, and of course are manifested outwardly from the inside, from the outside in as well. So the Buddha, as I mentioned the first night, the Buddha is one who is awake, abiding in wakeful energy. And good and bad is about me. It's about me versus. High self-esteem, low self-esteem, comparing mind, etc. But what if we, and this is what the Buddha's practice, this practice we're doing here, asks us to do, to work with the inner fabric of how we're actually relating to each moment so that we actually meet life from the outside and especially on the inside here with ourselves from a place where we have a different fundamental stance. There are what are called the five spiritual powers or strengths. And it's said that, this is from one of the early texts. Just as the river Ganges flows to the east, slopes to the east, in the same way when a meditator develops and pursues the five strengths, he flows to unbinding, slopes to unbinding, inclines to unbinding, to freedom in the here and now. So what are these five qualities? And as we explore these, and maybe we'll make it through two or three this evening. As we explore these, these are meant very much to be in the service of what we're doing on this retreat. Larry's presenting very clearly um, an approach to breath awareness as a whole practice. Breath, whole body. And more than that, an approach to practice where there's a wholeness of the human being and a wholeness of awareness. And these five qualities can be considered like five facets of a jewel that reflect in individual ways and are aspects of the mind and the heart that is touching exactly what the emphasis of that we're working on this retreat is, which is to be able to meet our experience fully in a way that's whole, using a whole approach to body, breath, and then we'll expand. And so whether we're working classically with the teachings here and trying to follow them very clearly, or whether we have our own practice, the principles of mind and heart, these five strengths apply to whatever practice we're doing. So what are these five? So the first is faith, or sada, that's the ancient Pali word, um, or conviction, confidence, in other ways it's translated. The second is uh, effort, persistence, or energy, or virya in the Pali. The third is our hopefully our good friend by now, mindfulness, sati. The fourth is concentration or samadhi. And the fifth is wisdom or panya. So faith. Faith is, it's actually kind of a loaded word in in dharma circles, especially Buddhist ones. Because, and faith has a lot of bad press, just looking at the word, just at just a certain face level. Because uh, blind faith, blind spiritual religious faith, blind faith in almost anything, can be very dangerous when the actions that come out of that uh, blind faith are blind, based not on wisdom, and they get acted out. And we see the consequence of that throughout uh, oh, the planet we have throughout history. So we're all off the hook a little bit 
at least in terms of the classical teachings, Buddhist teachings, because sada or faith, uh, the first, there's two aspects of it. And one is, uh, it's not called blind faith, it's called bright faith. And the second aspect, which is coupled with it, which gets uh, purified and uh, strengthened, is verified faith. So it's faith that's based on experience, and that's when it becomes conviction, confidence. And so much of our practice is actually based on this movement of starting with some bright energy and then having it either verified or not verified. And if it's verified and it affects how we actually live, then it grows. And if it doesn't, then usually we move on. Or we have, the faith is just there, but it's not, it's not verified. It, it remains in a, a different form. So what's the power of faith in general? What is faith? What does it do for us? Well, faith is, in a very simple way, it's the movement from the known to the unknown. If you have faith in something, you have faith in the possibility of something. Once you know it, you know it. You don't have faith anymore. And that is a powerful energy. In a certain way, in terms of our practice, we're asked to actually have faith in the power of moving our hearts and minds fully into the moment. of giving up something to move into the unknown. And when we do that, each time we do that, whether it's in sitting or whether it's an adventure in life, there's some bright energy that moves us into the moment and then the moment arrives. Often in Western, uh, and this can be a powerful, there are many forms of faith. So that's one moving into the unknown. We have the faith often, and this is a, is a powerful faith in, in spiritual work as well, the faith to doubt if it's used well. So the faith, the faith to question. Now this is very much akin to the, the scientific model. Right? We, there, there's a confidence placed in questioning and really moving with the questioning energy to find out the truth about something, the laws that underlie something, and then use what we find in the service of, of something else, hopefully in the service of something good. The Buddhist teachings are not different than this. In an early teaching of the, the Buddha, he went to a town, uh, many of you have heard this, I think, uh, a place called uh, the Kalamas, where the Kalamas lived. And he went there and uh, they had a lot of spiritual people moving through, teachers, and they said, why should we listen to you? Now, do you think he just said blindly, have great faith in me, you will be saved? No. He said, take my teachings and test them. And don't do it blindly. Don't do it just because I said it, because I'm famous. Don't do it just on uh, the fact that it's, it's, it's you know, regarded well. But really test it in your own life. And if it's verified, if it helps you to live, then keep it. And if it doesn't, drop it and move on. I'm paraphrasing a bit. <laughs> so there's the face to question. Now, in our, this may be coming up, and we had the groups today, so some of, some of my comments, are, uh, reflections are coming from, from some of the energy of the groups. Some people, it seems, are um, sort of doubting the method. Now, there can be a healthy doubt in that course. But there can be a tendency, the faith to doubt, it can get very much caught in negative loops of just thinking, of criticism, of, ah, I doubt this, so I'm not going to give the energy to test it. I'm not going to really try this because my rational mind is saying, I don't know about this. 
I think I, I'm going to try to figure it out. I'm not going to take a leap of faith, which is what we actually have to do when we have the commitment to move freshly into the moment. It's actually a leap. It's an energy. It's an opening into. So if that's happening for any of us, and it's happened for me many, many, many times over my years of practice, so... <laughs> Uh, if it's, it's not a negative energy, it's, it's, it's a tendency of mind. So it's something that sometimes we have to work with if we're going to potentially find out the benefits that a particular method have, for example. So we have to have a leap of faith which gives us energy to move into the unknown. The faith to doubt is good, but if it gets stuck in limited habit patterns of mind, then it's actually not a useful faith to doubt. Now, the faith to doubt, when it's useful, is, this, is having a, a sense of testing. And it's also useful if we, can, if we can hold on to it in a much deeper, bigger way, which is the foundation of a lot of really uh, deep spiritual teachings. So in Zen, they have you know, the question, what is it? What is it? Like, what is this? Like You're doubting the nature of it. Or I practiced in a place in South India where the question was, who am I? So, or there's classical teachings in India, not this, not this. So, and in a way, we're doing this, even here in a certain way. Uh, when we're looking for awareness and a thought comes up and we attach to it, the instructions are, nope, that's not it. <laughs> come back to clear, direct seeing, right? Come back to that, come back to the openness of heart and mind that meets things that's not used to our habitual energy. So there can be tremendous energy uh, in the questioning mind, the doubting mind. So the term, and it's, there's actually a faith in it. There's an energy of moving into the unknown with it. So it's a very, very uh, powerful energy. But it has to be sincere in terms of us looking at what actually gets us stuck in the moment. So now we're back to faith. We have to use our energy of moving into the unknown to actually make a commitment to look at things exactly as they are and to come out from underneath our habit patterns of mind and heart that are keeping us stuck. Because we're here to get unstuck, aren't we? And the mind is really relentless. It does not want to let go, does it? So one classic way in this tradition faith is described as the faith in letting go, right? Non-clinging. It's a beautiful teaching. Uh, faith in letting go. Ajahn Chah, the great uh, Thai teacher, said, if you let go a little, you get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, wow. No, he didn't say wow. <laughs> you get complete peace. So we have faith in the concept of it. It's beautiful. And that can inspire us. But the Buddha's teachings are, they're, uh, they're, the teachings are called, what is, it's called going upstream. It's like a, it's quite an image. It's like a, a raft that's floating upstream. So it's floating against the currents of our habit patterns of mind and heart. Against this belief in good and bad experiences, what this, this image of the Buddha stepping out of, not being swayed by these forces on his uh, night of enlightenment, that image. So are we really willing to move into the unknown in a way that actually moves in the opposite direction. And often that comes, the opposite direction comes into just, you know, needing to be comfortable. Now, we're going to struggle, if we haven't already, we'll struggle with that this week quite a bit because it's, it's hot and it's going to get hotter. I shouldn't tell you that. It'll get cooler at some point, you know. There's four seasons around here. <laughs> But there can be a struggle, and there can be a lot, and the mind can grasp on and really buy into those energies and believe them and create stories. And we've lost the movement into the possibility of the freshness of now each time. It's not that those energies don't have to arrive, but when we believe them, when we buy into them. So it's, it, it's going upstream. 
And it is, the Buddha said very simply that the teachings are suffering and the end of suffering, right? We really don't, if you're like me, we don't want to look directly at what is blocking us from being free. It's not our natural bend. It's not our conditioning. It's not our cultural conditioning. We're not wrong for it. It's just very, very strong. So on the surface, things can look just right, or maybe they don't look so right, but often they do. But underneath, so these are underlying relational tendencies of mind and heart, how we relate to the moment. So I had a little mini experience recently of this, just the not seeing clearly and being addicted to it with my car. And so uh, dukkha is called, uh, one of the analogies for dukkha, actually it's called a wheel out of kilter. It means there's something in the fabric of how our minds and hearts are moving in relation to experience that's just not, it's off, okay? I like it because that's how it feels often. Our car's running along, our life's running along, but something in there is just off. So I, you know, have a car with like 50,000 miles on it and I got some new tires. And after I got my new tires, the car started to shake. And it was shaking at different speeds and this and that. It was really pretty dramatic. Right, Malika? Malika's my partner. She's in the back. Anyways, I, I really, I got out of the, a number of times, I got out of the car, I looked at the tires. I'm like, they're perfect. There's nothing wrong with my tires. I took it in. They rebalanced them. I spent, you know, this money and that money. They realigned the car, this and that. They kept shaking. So, uh, I, and I still tried, I tried to deny it. Now, this is really gross ignorance, but I tried. There's nothing wrong with my tires. Something else has to be wrong. So I finally went in, and actually I asked, I asked Malik, I said, is, there, is the car shaking? It's driving down the road, we're shaking. I'm like, is the car shaking? I didn't want to deal. I did not want to look at the tire. I did not want to. So I finally I went to different mechanics. I finally went to a mechanic who said, oh, yeah, the inner, I'm not a tire guy, and please, if I get this wrong, if there are any mechanics in the room, don't forgive me. But there are treads. There are, you know, there, there are steel radials or something inside a tire. And he said, the inner fabric of what's supporting the tire is off. One of your tires, is, it, wasn't, like it's, it's not, it wasn't made right. It's not set right or something. And I said, it looks fine. He said, it doesn't matter what it looks like. You've got to replace what's inside. You've got to get... I was like, oh. And I was like, that's just like... So I did. But meanwhile, as I was doing... I mean, and it can be dangerous. That's why I asked, that's why I asked my partner. I said, is this... Like, is it, a car shaking can be dangerous. So it's not just... For us, it can be dangerous for other people on the road. And, you know, you know the analogy, right? <laughs> uh, so we finally got it changed. And it was interesting because the tires are fine, but because it was shaking so much, it did some more damage, and I had to get that fixed. And, okay, and that's, that's life is messy. <laughs> so it's a wheel out of kilter, and we have to look under the surface. We have to have that willingness. And it's the faith to actually do that. It's the energy. It's the willingness to enter into that process. And what faith is beautiful for uh, is when we look, often in insight meditation, this is often called dry insight meditation. Does anyone sit here and feel like in, uh, breathing, and things are arising, I'm watching, it feels like a dry process? Nobody has that? Okay. Let's, if there's a joke. It's called dry insight workers. So faith, and it's not played out big, it's more of the rational kind, it's the questioning. And then it moves right into the next factor. But there's actually, what faith can do, uh, and one of my teachers that, uh, that I worked with some years ago, who's a teacher in this tradition, said, you know, it's not, the, the energy of faith is not worked with very, very much in this tradition, and actually has a lot of power. So what faith, does, and it can be quite dangerous, <laughs> But faith marshals the heart. It marshals an opening of the heart through, when it functions, we have faith in something. And when it functions well, so by itself it's just faith and it, it turns into hope. And we can hope all we want and it doesn't necessarily uh, change anything. Temporarily, the energy, if we put it on something, if we have faith, if you have faith in the Buddha, right? Uh, temporarily, if you have faith in a teacher, if you have faith in archetypal in images, etc., whatever does it for you in terms of opening your heart, surrendering your heart in a way. It's said in the scriptures that this actually, uh, it has, 
I, I read a couple, of, uh, a couple of different instances. It says, one, temporarily, there's a story of, I think it was the Buddha in a formal life, a former life, and uh, he, went to, he, he was with a retinue, and he went to get some water that was <clears throat> dirty, but he was very thirsty. And the water magically cleared, and he got clear water. Uh, another, another image that's used is, is that it temporarily, when you, have an, when you have that devotion, that opening of the heart onto something, that it clears away all of the obscurations for a while in the mind and the heart. It makes us feel good. It clears away sleepiness and anger and restlessness and all these energies that besiege us. We're trying to be present. So it's considered a temporary, something that's very beautiful. But by itself, it's not enough. And it can be dangerous if, it, if it's blind. When it's skillful, what happens is that we put energy into something that's external, teachings, teachers, etc. And then if it's used well, then that energy, it's like we borrow energy in a certain way from the object, or it's a projection. I don't know about that. But basically what happens is that it gets turned back and you probably hear Larry say this all the time, or you'll hear good teachers and good teachings say it. It's about the transformation of your own mind and heart. So that faith, that energy, which becomes big and can temporarily create a lot of peace, it can be very, very useful, extremely useful. It has to, and this is where the other factors come in, it has to move towards an inner transformation so it's one's own transformation. It's not just like a good temporary feeling. And that takes a different quality. So faith by itself uh, can be powerful. It's, it's a, it can be a beautiful, uplifting emotional energy. It's emotional possibility. It's a heart energy. Um, by itself, it's not enough. So this is one of the... So there's a, uh, an old story that's told of uh, some guy, maybe some of you have heard this, some guy who's in a boat on the ocean and the, there's a, the boat, uh, there's an accident in the ocean, and the boat, he's just floating out there. Everyone's, the boat sinks, and he's on a piece of, a piece of wood holding onto it. And he starts praying to God. He's, he's devoted. Devoted to God to come and save me, come and save me. He's very devoted. And so this helicopter comes by and throws down a ladder, and he says, no, 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 go on your way. I'm, I'm waiting for God. God's going to save me. The boat comes by. No, 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 I'm waiting for God. God's going to save me. Another helicopter comes by. No, 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 waiting for God. He's going to save me. You probably know the end of the story. He drowns. He was a good guy with a lot of faith, so he goes to heaven. And then he comes face to face with God. God says, what are you doing here? He says, I'm, and he says, I have a bone to pick with you. I have such great faith in you, I ask you to save me. And you didn't save me. And God says, well, I don't understand. Why are you here? I sent you two helicopters and a boat. So there's an energy that is a devotional energy, but it has to be, you got to, it has to move. <laughs> so it can move in terms of how we're practicing. When we have faith in the possibility, not just of letting go as an abstraction, but opening into that moment as the unknown, as, a po as the possibility of actually touching freedom, of just here I am, opening into it, there can be a devotion so faith turns into devotion, right? It can be towards other things as well. It turns, and that, turns, that can turn into an offering. It can turn into action. That can be quite beautiful. So from the emotional connection energy, it can turn into, and this is what bhakti, there's whole traditions of devotion, there's an opening, there's a quality of surrender. And some people that I know really have that, and they apply it right here. So there's an, there's an offering of attention in a way to being here, and it's a heartful energy. So don't overlook that, and don't just be dry insight workers. <laughs> if that's accessible to you, if that's available to you. But faith alone is not enough. What is the second factor? Effort or perseverance. Now we can understand this one better can't we? So firstly, it's said that, um, that effort needs to be aligned with, it needs to be aligned with 
what our goals are in practice, what our orientation is in practice. And there's a couple of facets. One is uh, abandoning what we need to abandon or release or let go of. It's an orientation. And the second is what we hold on to, what we do not abandon. And we often get these confused. It's said that Buddhist teachings are like, a, when they're fulfilled, it's like a, a, a bird with two wings that flies beautifully through the air, right? moves gracefully through life. And the two wings are uh, wisdom and compassion. So wisdom here is that quality of letting go. And often it's really the willingness and then the work that it takes to let go of our habitual reactive patterns, moment by moment, that block being free in the moment. It takes a quality of really real, deep, simple sincerity to be here, to stay, to come back, to come into the mind that is upright, that lands right in the midst of experience and lets go of the mind that is addicted to pushing and pulling, to wanting and not wanting. And it's compulsive. And one way that this very much services is thinking. (laughs) So that's, uh, we're really working to change our relationship with thought in practice. Now often we think that means not to think. And it can feel great not to think. Ah, just a breath. Or just a deepening quality that comes when we settle into the moment. And the later factors we'll talk about um, in the next talk, talk more about these qualities of steadying the mind and going deep in the mind. But the factor of wisdom is a factor that has the effort to change our relationship to thought. And that's a lot of what the instructions are asking us to do. is not to get rid of thought, but also not to believe it. Not an easy balancing act. <laughs> and the same thing with time, which is tied in with thought. Right? So we, we believe in time. And when we, when we have that act, the moment by moment, dropping deeply into the moment, then it's like time comes to us. Our memories come, they come to something which is here present, awake, rather than the mind moving towards. And it becomes the same energy of thought. Thought can come, but we're still stay steady. So we have to relinquish, at least in terms of effort, our compulsive relationship to thought and to time as best we can. And it takes effort to do that. There's an effort of letting go. And there's an effort of non-abandoning, not abandoning our life here and now not abandoning what we meet, but rather abandoning how we meet it, the qualities of how we meet it. So compassion meets, means meeting life fully. And that means meeting our thoughts, meeting our difficult emotions, meeting our restlessness, our tiredness, etc., with an energy that's willing to embrace it and be with it and be responsive with it. So effort has the flavor of both abandoning and not abandoning. And you can take this as a much bigger picture in how we live in the world as well. Uh, but now let's talk about the actual qual- what, what is What motivates? The next level of effort is what, is what motivates us? How do we marshal energy to practice? So there's a lot of the basic early reflections. And we, sometimes we come to practice this way. <laughs> are through the vicissitudes of life, are through the fact that sometime, somehow we just wake up and, up. Oh, I don't have forever. <laughs> Something shakes us. And there's energy that says, oh, if I'm going to wake up, I need to do it now. And so we're being asked in our practice to wake up moment by moment, to awareness that arises in the breath and the body. So this is a beautiful, this is a a quote I like from Tsongkhapa, who's one of the founders of one of the um, schools of Tibetan Buddhism, Galuk school. And see if you can relate this to our moment by moment relationship with our breath and our bodies, breath in the body. The human body at peace with itself 
is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with great difficulty. It is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore, set your goal. Make use of every day and night to achieve it. But wait, I thought our goal was just to be here. Touch the energy of the fragility of life, though, and the preciousness of this body, of this breath, of this moment, and see if that can orient us to actually realizing that the truth, that the goal is to be here, fully here, because this is life is lived fully in moments. And yet we need to cultivate, we need to develop, we need to work. So that's why we sit. And that's why we say at the end of the evening, and probably say it again tonight, if you have more energy, come and sit, (laughs) right? And there's different qualities of energy. One is a very strong energy. So uh, it's interesting, when I went, you know, Larry gives quotes when he, when he did research for his book and on Breath by Breath. He, uh, he went and talked to the top scholars on breath and went around the world and went to the great master as well. When I researched uh, these five factors, I went to Google. <laughs> so what happened when I typed in Viria <laughs> was, you know, those little banners, advertisement banners? Came up Viria, male sexual empowerment pills. <laughs> I was like, all right, <laughs> no, uh, okay. I thought, that, that's terrible, that's gross, that's crass, that's, and then I, no, that's actually a, that's actually a part of energy. Uh, it's what's called yang in the Chinese, yin and yang. It's strong energy. So sometimes we can bring that into practice and it can be really, really useful. But from my experience, in smaller doses. So I've done practices in, Thailand and Japan, where you, you'd sit all night, or remember I was in one Japanese monastery, they made us sit so long without moving that I, had, I hadn't practiced that long. I had tears just streaming down my face, pain, extended. And the monk came up to me, I was going to move. And he said, you move one inch and you're thrown out of the monastery. So I had to marshal some of that really strong, just will energy. Uh, and that can be, it can actually be useful to, cultivate that to an extent. If we do it too much, we burn out or we get egotistical and that can be even worse. <laughs> we get very attached. But sometimes it's good to play with the energy of, uh, and in some traditions they work with determination a lot to say, I'm, to actually set, I'm not going to move this. I'm not asking us to do this, but if you feel that you want to engage that energy, it can be powerful in small periods and it can stretch what we think is possible in practice. So that's strong energy. Uh, What we really need in practice is balanced energy for the most part. And so balanced energy is neither, if we we overdo the the strong energy, what happens? Like I said, we can burn out. And there's a story from the Buddha's time where one uh, monk came to him and he was trying so hard and uh, he was not getting it. So he came to the Buddha and he said, I'm gonna leave. I can't take this. Can anyone relate to this? We have expectations about how practice is supposed to go. We're supposed to get something, some state of peace, etc., and we don't get it. And we get frustrated and we try harder and we don't get it. And then the mind collapses and it wants to give up. Okay. And that's when doubt comes in and it's generally not healthy doubt. Because with any experiment, like if you're in a laboratory, you have to see it through. That's kind of what this week is for... <laughs> when we do intensive prayer. You have to see it through to see what, the, see what the effects are. So this monk came, Sona, came to the Buddha and said, I'm fed up, pretty much. Um, I have to go. And the Buddha said to him, wait, Sona. Uh, he said, what were you before you were a monk? And he said, I was a, he, he knew what he was. He was a musician. 
and uh, he, I guess he, uh, he played the lute. And so it's a sutra from the, the, lute, the lute player. So here's the Buddha. What do you think, to Sona the monk, what do you think when the strings of your lute were neither, oopsie, uh, Sona, over-aroused persistence leads to restlessness. Over, so effort, right? Over-slack persistence leads to laziness. We, can, we suffer from that one too, right? Thus you should determine the right pitch of your effort, your persistence. Tune it to the five faculties, which are these faculties of, of, of uh, faith, effort, uh, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And there, pick your theme. There, pick up your theme, which is the next factor we'll talk about, which is the theme of, that we're actually playing, and that's the tune of mindfulness, which is meeting what's arising in a clear, uh, sustained way. What do you think when the strings, so he asked, he said, when the strings of, of, your, of your lute were neither too taut nor too loose, but tuned to the right pitch, was the lute tunable and playable? Yes, Lord. So we have to learn how to work with energy so that the instrument of our senses, of this moment, the mind-body meeting the moment, it's workable. So that we can make beautiful music. It's the art of attention. We're learning. So he's saying neither too tight nor too loose. Now for most of us, uh, that means we need to err on the side of relaxation because we come from a very a striving culture. I trained many years in Asia, and there the monks would exhort effort, 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 because it was more of a faith culture. It was a devotion culture, and it didn't always move into action. <laughs> right? So there would be this exhortation to work harder, work harder. Now, for a lot of us Westerners that came over there, it drove us crazy, because we actually needed to relax our attention. We were so stressed out and so striving Basically, we were, our, our, our instruments, the strings were breaking and our instruments were close to it. They didn't make nice music. So that's why we emphasize relaxation so much. It's finding the balance. So relaxation, on one level, it's a feeling that we get when we drop into the moment and we relax. We feel our shoulders drop. The breath might deepen, become more subtle. We're not so fighting so much. We just drop in and that's a natural process in meditation. It's also very much a conscious attitude shift, which we actually learn as a skill of attention. And if we, we could call it a compassionate, gentle, allowing, these words allow, receive, attitude, gently come back, at its core, relaxation is an attitudinal stance. It's a relational stance rather than actually a particular effect. And that takes time because we usually start to touch that quality of energy that meets the moment in a way that can hold it with more spaciousness, but also stays with it through seeing how much we go off. And so that's why we need to be able to be persistent. And that's why these two, actually these two factors work really beautifully together. We have to have the willingness the, and where the opening into the possibility of being free. And then we have to do the work of making the commitment to keep showing up, to keep coming back, but doing it in a way that is gentle and that our stance is relaxed so that we actually, the, the process that we're undergoing is an unwinding of tension and that is relaxation. That's the expression of it. We can't force it. We create the conditions for it. So the last, I'll just give a very short, um, just start with the third factor, which is mindfulness. Because both of these energies, they get, they need to find a place to land in a way. We need to have a, 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 something to experiment on, <laughs> uh, to apply it to. And that's this moment. And that's what's arising in this moment. And so the, the mindfulness, and Larry and I will both be going back, working around this point, and we already, we have in the instructions, and he will, I think, tomorrow, t tomorrow night more in his approach to Anapanasati.
mindfulness is both the remembrance of what we want to, what we're set for ourselves. Uh, sati comes from the, is related to the word smriti, which means memory. So it's that remembrance to come back. It, 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 it aligns itself with effort to come back. Uh, and then most primarily, it's the clear seeing that arises in the moment. It's the mind, in a way, it's the closest thing uh, that we can get to right now to the, to the unshakability of, that, of, of the Bodhi mind in a way. It said you can't have too much mindfulness. The, the other factors, if you have too much faith, uh, it can be dangerous, so you need wisdom in there. If you have uh, too much energy, then often you need to settle more, right? Which can come through calming and steadying, et cetera. Uh, we'll explore that more. But mindfulness, it said, it, it is clear, direct, non-judgmental seeing. So it is the mind that wakes up in the midst of experience. That's its function. It can function, we, so we're, we're observing the body, we're observing the breath in the body. We're being asked to be mindful of it in a way that doesn't need it to be any way. It's a tall order, and yet when it happens, it just happens. We're not pushing. It's not pushing and pulling. It's not caught up in mental overlays. And one way to relate to it in terms of the body, um, it says in the mindfulness. So the mindfulness is broken into different sections, and um, body, Larry described some feeling, tone, sensation, uh, movements of mind, and lawfulness. So he got some of it last night. We'll, we'll both do more. Um, that in the first foundation, so I'll leave us with this, because that's what we're focusing on very much at this point. Breath, anapanasati, in the context of the body. In the sutra on the four foundations of mindfulness, it says, be with the body in the body. So here's where these factors all come together. It's the willingness to move into this. You don't have to fix our gaze on the body. The willingness to move into the possibility of a different relationship with being in relation to our breath and our body right now. The quality of effort that's relaxed, that settles in. The body in the body. It means awareness arises right in the midst of our experience. So as we settle in, we move more from this gaze, this sense of I'm being mindful of, to a sense of really opening, surrendering, relaxing into the full immediacy of the moment. And then awareness arises right in the midst. And this is the hallmark. This is the hallmark. This is a flavor that runs through all of, in the approach that we're teaching here. It's a holistic approach, the natural approach to awakening. That there's, when we see it all as relationship, then it's how we're relating to each thing. And it's touching this quality of mind and heart that actually wakes up, that has balance right in the midst of our experience. So I had it in one of the interview groups today, I uh, was talking with someone and they had a very nice experience, hope they don't mind me sharing, uh, with the breath and they said they had bliss. And they went through this and they said, oh, and then I, it was a memory and it was stinking and they got tight, they looked like they got tight and they're struggling. Well, that's what happens, good, right? Good experience, bad experience. Good sitting, bad sitting. <laughs> and what I said to them, uh, and I'll, I'll end with this, is I said, okay, were you, was there awareness present? Mindfulness, right? Were you willing to drop right into it? Was there awareness present in the bliss or the rapture? Yes. <laughs> was there awareness uh, present after it? Yes. Was there awareness present in, and he called it the stink of the memory. I liked it, it's very graphic. <laughs> Because it wasn't there, it was just a memory. It wasn't the real thing anymore. And it was like, uh, yes, a little bit. So that's the energy that we're being asked to trust, to surrender, to open into with our heart and our minds fully, and to touch the energy that can be strong but is, moves towards relaxation, towards balance. So that we little by little attune ourselves, right? Like the lute, we attune ourselves to this quality of mindfulness this steadiness, this mind, the Buddhist path is considered the middle way. The mind that actually arises in a steady, clear way in the midst of experience. And so it's a thread. 
and it's gentle, and we're creating the conditions and these five, these five powers. When we start to live from this place, there's an inner kind of dignity that we have. I've seen it in people, I've seen it in, in some practitioners. It wasn't about their outer, and it has power. It actually has power as well. In ancient times, the Ashokan ruler in, in India, he was, uh, he was this war, warmongering ruler, and he had just killed, just won a huge battle, and he saw this monk, so the legend goes, walking across the battlefield with this demeanor, this peacefulness in the midst of all this, this, this torment and this suffering. And he saw them, and it, it, story goes, it completely changed his heart and his mind. He saw a dignity there in the face, a grace in the face of this tremendous suffering. It wasn't based on any show. It was based on an inner, like an inner glow, an inner, an inner dignity. But it had the power to change Ashoka, and he turned his whole kingdom into a, a peace-loving kingdom that was actually considered, it was, historians think, was the greatest kingdom at the time in the in, in the world, uh, and it was very advanced medicine. I'm not saying if we practice mindfulness, everything is going to be great in the world. <laughs> but if we can attune our hearts and minds to touching and cultivating this quality of these inner strengths, they're inner, they're relational to the moment, then there's, there's possibilities of letting this this combination of, of wisdom and compassion flower, not only in relation to our own experience, but also in relation to, uh, to the world, to our world, on retreat and outside of it. Um, so I guess, is that enough for tonight? So let's have a moment of silence, please. Okay, let's do some walking. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.